Hi, I'm Linda Calabresi. I'm a GP and the medical editor of HealthEd. Welcome to our unique podcast series now available direct to your device. The series features some of Australia's leading clinical experts talking on topics that are both practical and important to Australian GPs. Hello everyone, welcome. My name is Gary Leong. I'm a paediatric endocrinologist uh, and I work uh, at the Nepean Hospital where I'm the clinical lead of the paediatric diabetes service as well as the paediatric clinic at the Metabolic Health Service. And I'm also in private practice at the Children's Clinic in Bondi Junction. Today I want to talk to you about paediatric growth disorders 101, how to make your life as a general practitioner easy. I'd like to start off with a vision statement about childhood growth disorders, which I've been uh, involved in for the last 30 years during my career. It's very important that early diagnosis and regular follow-up of children and adolescents occurs uh, who present to you a short stature and abnormal growth to ensure optimal outcomes and delineation of the best therapeutic options. This includes an important role for you as a general practitioner in partnership with paediatricians and paediatric endocrinologists. And this allows uh, these patients to receive appropriate therapy with a holistic approach that may include recombinant growth hormone therapy, but not necessarily, but also other hormonal, nutritional, physical and psychological therapies. Growth, as you know, during childhood is both complex and fascinating. There are a number of important growth factors that impact on a child's journey from conception, intrauterine growth, and postnatal growth during infancy, childhood, puberty, into adulthood. And I've just shown here in this slide some of the important factors that over the last 30 years we've grown to understand in much more greater detail, especially the genetic, but also the effects of adverse childhood experiences on childhood growth, both prenatally and postnatally, Hormones, of course, classical hormones I'll talk about, importance of vital organ function and nutrition in this current age of overnutrition of unhealthy foods. Impact of all of these uh, different disorders and factors on, with disease, adverse childhood experiences and genetic abnormalities will eventually and do impact on final adult height. Obviously, your patients are going to be in between the two extremes shown here in the tallest man, Robert Wadlow, who had a growth hormone secreting tumour and reached almost nine feet in height, or 272 centimetres, or the shortest man, Gal Mohammed, who had a skeletal dysplasia and who was only 57 centimetres tall. During the talk, I'd like you to focus on the takeaway messages Definitely do not have any conflict of interest and no sponsorship from any fast food companies, including McDonald's. You're well aware about the key classical hormone controllers of normal growth, hormones that are regulated and secreted from the hypothalamus and pituitary gland in the brain, including, importantly, growth hormone and growth hormones downstream hormone, insulin-like growth factor, or IGF-1, thyroid hormone from the thyroid gland, cortisol from the adrenal gland, and sex steroids from, uh, in girls from the ovary, producing estrogens, and in boys uh, from the testes, making androgens. The growth plate is the final organ, though, that determines the final height. And it's quite clear uh, that this has been determined through many genetic studies over the last 30 years. 
but during the obesity epidemic, we're now seeing an effect of insulin on promoting overgrowth, not only in waist circumference, but also in height. But I'll talk about that in a later talk. So what is growth? Basically, it's a sensitive indicator of the overall health of a child. And I like to look at it at more than just stature growth, because it's obviously a physical change in the child as they mature towards adolescence and adulthood with skeletal enlargement and stature increase in height. But it's very important that during this childhood period uh, that peak bone mass is acquired to, to prevent long-term risk of osteoporosis. Healthy fat mass is acquired to prevent long-term risk of obesity and diabetes and heart disease. And adequate muscle or protein mass for general wellness and general strength. Also sexual function during uh, pubertal changes and then ultimately normal reproductive function and fertility. And then very much at the front of our minds as paediatricians now, psychological health, having a positive uh, growth mindset and preventing mental illness, promoting good mental health. So these phases, prenatal, infancy, childhood and puberty, prepare the child for a healthy, hopefully healthy and productive and thriving adult life. Now, fascinatingly, the first human growth chart was charted by Count Philippe Junot de Montbéliard in the 18th century, who was a French lawyer and naturalist who basically measured his own son, Francois, every six months from birth till he was almost 18 years of age. And strikingly, the growth chart as shown here with height on the top panel and height gain per centimetre per year on the bottom panel basically reflects the charts that we use now from the Centre of Disease and Char uh, CDC charts. Incredibly, he survived smallpox inoculation at age 10 that his father gave him, and Francois lived to a ripe old age of 88 years, despite being a capitaine in the French cavalry. So the charts we use now, the CDC charts, are shown here exactly the same as what uh, the Count produced in his one son, showing height on the left and height velocity on the right. And you can see a, a child with the red dots of the measurements tracking beautifully normally uh, during childhood. So you take away one message. Measure accurately and measure frequently every six months. Growth doesn't just occur uh, in one or two months and you do get periodic growth periods, especially during uh, summer where there's more physical activity, improved nutrition, calorie intake and better growth. Please take the shoes off, not your own, but the children's to measure them because that uh, is often a confounding factor. Measure both height and weight because you really do need to follow BMI from infancy, from as young as possible to uh, screen for obesity and risk for type 2 diabetes. And if the child is overweight, measure their waist circumference. Simple tape measure does the job around the umbilicus, the maximal measurement. And these uh, resources can be found to help you measure accurately at prohealthykidsnewsouthwales.gov.au. So what is abnormal growth? By definition, short stature is less than the third centile on the CDC chart in the context of the parents' and family's heights and pubertal history while severe short stature below the first centile um, occurs in more uh, 
ch in children with more likely uh, a, a genetic cause or some other um, chronic disease cause or hormonal problem. Growth failure can be defined as a slow growth velocity less than the 25th centile for bone age where there is crossing down of centiles. And I use the little um, reminder, less than four, less than four centimetres is poor. I haven't got time to talk about puberty today, but obviously uh, you see patients with early puberty, precocious puberty and delayed puberty as defined here on the slide, or absent puberty. So the importance of the first centile on the chart. So on the left in the female chart, you see a girl tracking normally uh, about on the 10th centile, a good indicator of normal hormone function, normal nutrition and normal well-being. Compared to the boys on the right-hand side panel showing falling centiles, the top boy from a taller stature baseline at the 90th centile down to just below the 25th, and another child who's from a shorter parents dropping from the 10th to well below the first centile as shown here in the green line. You have to ask your question, is that child's growth pattern normal? Obviously the child's been measured many times, but you can measure them over a six to 12 month period to get that gauge. How is weight and BMI changing? So if BMI is increasing, it's more likely related to a hormone problem, whether that be hypothyroidism, Cushing syndrome or growth hormone deficiency or chronic disease if the BMI is falling with weight uh, or nutritional problems. The high velocity chart shown here on the left in the girls in pink and boys on the right emphasises that little message less than four is poor. So that the 25th centile at different ages is shown in the bottom panel on the left in the girls less than 7.5 at around about two years of age is the 25th centile at about 10 years of age is less than five centimetres in both boys and girls. So if the child is growing four centimetres or less, that's quite abnormal. The peak growth velocity between girls and boys in large part uh, during puberty determines final height as well, with girls peaking somewhere around about 10, while boys 12 centimetres. This is a tribute to uh, Jim Tanner, who's the father of modern oxology and publisher of many treaties and books, but his classic Fetus into Man. And he um, defined the, the, what we know now, use now as the Tanner stages of puberty on the left in boys and on uh, girls on the right, uh, showing changes in uh, penile size, testicular size, and pubic hair in boys and in girls uh, breast uh, development, pubic hair, and menarche at the last part, of, last part of their growth spurt. In more detail shown here in girls, most girls will at 50th centile uh, reach um, breast stage 2 at the beginning of puberty at age 11, um, and most would have started menarche just before the 12th and half birthday. In boys, they're a little bit later with um, testicular volumes of four mils, which signals the beginning of puberty usually occurring somewhere between the 11 and a half to 12th birthday. So takeaway number two, family history in parents or siblings. Do the, is there a history of delayed menarche in the mother or si uh, female siblings or delayed puberty in either parent? Just ask and you'll receive important information because often you'll see children with this um, constitutional growth delay of puberty that's often passed on from parent to child. 
What are the causes of short stature or growth failure? And can obviously have just short stature without growth failure uh, or normal stature, as I showed you on previous growth chart, uh, above the third centile with growth failure. Familial short stature is obviously very common, and I see a lot of worried parents from short families of uh, different ethnic backgrounds, especially Asians, who come to see me worried, will their child reach a normal height? Can't we make them taller? Can't we give them growth hormone? Questions which are loaded with lots of um, ethical issues. Constitutional growth of delay of puberty I've mentioned is very common. I'll talk about that in a little bit more detail in the next few slides. Children from um, the severe uh, neonatal intensive care due to prematurity and intrauterine growth retardation uh, often have poor height, height outcomes. And then obviously chronic disease, celiac being foremost in needing to be excluded because often they just present with poor growth uh, without any gastrointestinal sy sy symptoms. Inflammatory bowel disease, Crohn's and ulcerative colitis usually present with quite marked abdominal symptoms, pain and diarrhoea, etc. Kidney, liver, cardiac, metabolic and uh, exogenous steroids all impact on dis uh, growth um, in children. There are very common genetic syndromes associated with poor growth and short stature, Turner syndrome being the foremost, Noonan syndrome in both boys and girls, and in those with severe intrauterine growth retardation, Russell Silver, and many others, as the genetic uh, age has arrived, uh, defining many, many new genetic syndromes. Do they have disproportionate short stature, skeletal dysplasias? And the one that you should remember is Shock's deficiency, which I'll talk about in a bit more detail, and then hypochondroplasia. So in the end, only a small percentage, 10% at most, have an endocrine cause of their poor growth and short stature. Primary hypothyroidism, obviously, panhypopituitarism, which may or may not be associated with growth hormone deficiency, which can be acquired post-brain cancer treatment or other cancer treatment or congenital, often presenting in the neonatal period. And then hypogonadotrophic hypogonadism, a very long term that just describes lack of pituitary or hypothalamic puberty hormones, LH, FSH, uh, called Kalman syndrome, which can be associated with altered sense of smell or hyposmia or anosmia. And then one of my favourite, because as a fellow when I was at NIH many years ago, now 30 years ago, uh, we saw many children with endogenous Cushing syndrome and uh, present with uh, pituitary uh, Cushing disease due to ACTH-secreting adenoma. This short stature diagnostic algorithm comes from Ray Hins and Ritson's uh, algorithms in pediatric endocrinology. It's too small to read, but I recommend it to you. This slide is to remind me to think, get you to think about, again, using the tape measure to measure upper segment, uh, lower segment ratios to look for disproportionate short stature, as well as arm span to measure arm span, which should be equal to height in most children, except for very young children. Obviously, you, don't, uh, you won't be seeing many uh, children in your practice with achondroplasia due to FG, FGFR3 gene signaling defect. Um, there'll be more subtle uh, uh, skeletal dysplasias that you may be able to pick up, namely, as I mentioned, shocks deficiency and hypochondroplasia. So measuring arm span, upper segment ratio is important for that. Whenever you see someone with a 
uh, radial bowing like this, immediately think of Larry Wall syndrome, Madeline deformity, which can occur in girls with Turner syndrome and associated with Shock's deficiency. Shock's being an important gene for growth plate function and normal growth. So takeaway number three, uh, they proportionate or disproportionate, get your tape measure out, measure the arm span, and then that will help you decide about um, what type of short stature they have. Also, it's important to, uh, in the assessment of growth, to look at a bone age x-ray of the child. This helps us gauge the maturity comparison to standard x-rays as shown here in the slide to this 1959 radiographic atlas that was produced by two radiographers at Stanford, Grulich and Pyle. Still stands as, and is still used, though we've moved into the modern age now um, with uh, boneexpert.com that uses digital photography and uh, artificial intelligence to actually give you a bone age reading. Generally, I don't trust the radiologist's report because they just look quickly at the X-ray, look quickly at the X-ray um, equivalent in the atlas, and usually it's uh, out by one or two uh, plates. So I look at it myself, um, and if there's any concern, um, one can use the Bone Expert program. Using that program, you also are able to calculate mid-parental height, as shown in the formula here, and that is uh, important in determining genetic potential, obviously, in your child. That's the website for Bone Expert. I mentioned about Cushing syndrome. This is a paper that we published uh, over uh, 25 years ago uh, when I was at NIH in a set of identical twin girls from Arkansas. One twin on the left, twin A, presented with hypercortisolemia, Cushing syndrome due to pituitary ACTH secreting adenoma. When I was taking her history, I asked her about her family history and she said she had an identical twin. So through uh, the powers of the NIH, I was able to do a clinical study and follow them for um, almost till they were 21 when they first presented. They were around about 15 and followed their growth chart and their growth and body composition. And you can see the DEXA scan that's done there um, at adult, young adulthood showed the affected twin despite being cured of a Cushing syndrome, still had abnormal bone density compared to their healthy control. It was obviously extremely shorter than her uh, healthy twin, identical twin, some 21 centimetres, and also had uh, persisting fat mass. Very powerful effect of um, uh, cortisol excess on growth and body composition. Now, I mentioned about constitutional growth delay of puberty, or CGDP, or sometimes known as maturational delay. Usually these children have a height below the third centile and slowing of growth, but not necessarily. And often there's a history of suboptimal nutritional intake for the level of energy expenditure. The annual growth weight is usually slow, less than five centimetres, but they examine otherwise normally have pubertal delay, bone age delay, and often there's a positive family history. And there seems to be hypermetabolism in such boys, especially uh, that compromises growth, and some of them are also on psychostimulants for ADHD that I see. Takeaway number five, uh, looking at what investigations you may do as your basic investigations for a child with short stature. Obviously many GPs leave that up to me and they ref when they refer, but if they had followed the children for that six-month measurement and still feel 
investigations are required because they're growing slowly or they're severely short. I obviously do a whole set of uh, general bloods, look for anemia, blood count, uh, chronic inflammation, iron uh, studies for bowel problems, electrolytes for kidney and liver function, calcium, vitamin D, and vitamin B12 and folate. Importantly, celiac serology, including total IgA. As I mentioned, often they do not have any other symptoms other than poor growth. A thyroid function test um, and antibodies if indicated, if there's a history of autoimmune thyroid disease in a family or goiter. IGF-1 and IGF-BP3 are growth factors that are involved in growth when IGF-1 axis and can be used as a screening, though they're certainly not diagnostic necessarily of growth hormone deficiency, which requires growth hormone stimulation testing. And then if they're at a pubertal age, looking at their gonadal axis, luteinizing hormone, follicle-stimulating hormone, free testosterone in boys, unless they have PCOS in girls, estradiol in girls, prolactin for, to exclude a prolactinoma and delayed puberty, um, and then if signs of premature adrenarche, pubic hair, auxiliary hair in a young child, 17-hydroxyprogesterone, DHEAS, look for congenital adrenal hyperplasia. Karyotype, if a girl is less than the first centile, to exclude Turner syndrome. And if there's any concerns about hypogonadism in a boy or history of um, undescended testes or hypospades, karyotype in a boy as well. But they don't do bone ages until at least three or four years of age, as otherwise they're not very helpful. And in girls with pubertal disorders, whether it's early or late puberty, pelvic ultrasound can be helpful. So this is the classical type uh, phenotype of Turner syndrome, 45X, 50% of such girls with Turner syndrome have this karyotype, while others have a mosaic, and they have associated shocks deficiency, as shown here in the middle slide, with the madeline deformity, radial bowing, uh, low posterior hairline, web necking, and short fourth metacarpal bone on the x-ray, which is so pathognomic of Turner syndrome, as well as pseudo-hypoparathyroidism. So takeaway number six, by now you're probably getting quite full, having so many takeaways, but in all girls with short, severe short stature below the first centile, please ask yourself, could this girl have mosaic or classical Turner syndrome? Before you answer yourself, order a karyotype, as often these children have very subtle features, especially if they are mosaic Turner syndrome. The growth chart from Turner syndrome is shown here in the right slide, and it indicates the 95th centile on the Turner syndrome chart because that is one that's used on the National Growth Hormone Program for eligibility for growth hormone treatment. Remembering that the mean final height of such girls is only about 144 centimetres, so almost 20 centimetres less than uh, non-Turner syndrome girls. So earlier diagnosis, earlier treatment of growth hormone leads to better long-term outcomes, and growth hormone does therapy does improve final height in these girls. So if starting as young as four to six years of age, one can anticipate five to ten, ten centimetres increase in final height. Obviously, Turner syndrome girls have many other um, problems, including cardiovascular, aortic root problems, risk for hypertension, kidney problems, malformations, and metabolic problems with risk of obesity and type 2 diabetes. And we usually treat them nowadays at an appropriate age for starting puberty around about 11 to 12 rather than waiting till 14 to 15 like we used to uh, with low dose transdermal estrogen patches. 
You'll see less uh, numbers of children with Noonan syndrome, but it also is an important genetic syndrome, the so-called female Turners, but it has a completely different uh, molecular signaling pathway that's um, abnormal in the RAS-MAP signaling pathway. And though I don't treat many ch children with Noonan syndrome or growth hormone because there is a certain increased risk potentially of malignancies with some of these syndromes. And then I've mentioned already about uh, shocks deficiency with disproportionate short, short stature. So you can get children with shocks deficiency, with shocks gene deletions or regulatory gene deletions affecting the shocks gene um, expression do, that do not, uh, that occurs in both boys and girls and do not have Turner syndrome. Now the growth hormone IGF-1 axis is obviously a very important axis um, in terms of growth and I've mentioned it uh, in terms of screening for growth hormone deficiency with uh, IGF-1 and IGF-BP3. This is one of my patients that I had the honour to follow since almost he was five years of age, he's now 17, and he presented to me at just before his fifth birthday with growth failure as shown here on the left bottom slide, delayed bone age. His IGF-1 was undetectable and his IGF-BP3 well below the normal range. His bone age was delayed. He had a growth hormone stimulation test which showed unresponsive growth hormone despite sex steroid priming. He had a normal MRI of his brain in pituitary dough. Though he had an ectopic posterior pituitary, hypoplastic anterior pituitary stalk, so not quite normal in fact and he had diagnosis of severe isolated growth hormone deficiency. So as I say, I've been following him for the last 12 years and he's responded incredibly well to small doses of growth hormone. They're very sensitive, growing in the first two years at about 10 to 11 centimetres per year. And he's reached his genetic potential, remembering his father's 188 centimetres tall, so he's on the 75th to 90th, his mid-parental height. This isn't a picture of him, this is taken from Lawson Wilkins' textbook of paediatric endocrinology but illustrates in the same child followed over seven years almost in August 57 to July 63 uh, treatment with pituitary-derived growth hormone in small um, quantities. And you can see very poor outcomes. Uh, uh, child even at the age of 10 was only barely 100 centimetres tall with central adiposity, small mid-facial hyperplasia, often have a high-pitched voice, so I call the Donald Duck voice, and uh, can have a micro penis as well. So the mean final height of untreated severe growth hormone deficiency is somewhere in the range of down here, shown here, about 140 centimetres. In my uh, patient, um, you can see he had an amazing response and he's going to reach his genetic potential. He had a normal spontaneous puberty and didn't require um, testosterone supplementation, though it did um, commence thyroid hormone replacement uh, soon after commencing growth hormone. The PBS growth hormone program is quite unique in the world in that it uses oxological criteria for treatment, but in those who are growth hormone deficient, response is um, less than 10 is quite strict. Um, so severe growth hormone deficiency, congenital uh, growth hormone deficiency, uh, and then childhood onset post-radiation or brain tumour such as craniopharyngioma and for hypothalamic obesity and other genetic forms of hypopituitarism, which are rare but fascinating. And then Prader-Willi syndrome can, is now on the, uh, has been on the um, 
criteria for treatment. And in the last uh, three years, adult biochemical growth hormone deficiency is now approved for treatment, which is wonderful. So children who acquired uh, or had congenital growth hormone deficiency now can be treated from the transition phase into adulthood from 16 years of age and is approved for treatment of body composition and well-being. And then the final takeaway of my talk is always listen to a mother's concerns. If they're worried, you should be worried. So don't dismiss their concerns. Get them back for a measurement. Confirm whether they've got normal growth velocity or, and they're tracking normally or they're not. And thank you for your attention. I'll leave some other resources uh, with the slides from the APEG, Australian Paediatric Endocrine Group, which has a whole range of public uh, resources on growth charts and other information for patients and then some other uh, information about the history of the PBS National Growth Hormone Program in Australia. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us. We hope you are enjoying this series and will recommend it to your friends and colleagues. I'm Linda Calabresi and on behalf of the team here at HealthEd, I look forward to joining you soon for our next podcast. If you enjoyed this audio segment, you can find out more about our free webcast lectures, which can be accessed from any device on our website at healthed.com.au. The podcasts published on this page are for medical professionals only. The content is not a substitute for medical advice. If you have a health issue, you should seek the advice of a suitable qualified health professional.